it's lovely to be with you and um, just to get a whole weekend together already over supper um, so much more that you can do than just preaching at a, a church seeing a few people and then disappearing so it's really wonderful to be with you um, and I don't know whether you guys organized this the elders asked me to speak about spiritual warfare and then they turned the lights out do you know what I mean <laughs> so and you get to walk out in the dark later on just to check whether you were listening so um, so yeah so I I felt like with a, a theme like spiritual warfare that maybe we needed to start by just asking why why would you do uh, a weekend? Why would you do three messages and some seminars tomorrow afternoon on the topic of spiritual warfare? And I want to give you at least three quick reasons, and then I'm going to jump into it. Firstly, alignment. Um, we are socially embedded beings, and you are constantly being shaped and discipled by influences all around you. And so I think it's a very healthy thing to regularly check in and to check that how I think, how I see the world is actually lining up with Scripture. And when it comes to spiritual warfare, Christians tend to make one of two mistakes. They're either enamored with uh, spiritual warfare, they either make an overemphasis of it, or they act like it's an unreality, that it doesn't exist. And neither of those are actually the biblical worldview. So if you've got a if you've been dipped in secular humanism, you'll tend to, to, to value reason and logic and things like that. And you tend to underemphasize. But if you are from, we're from KwaZulu-Natal, if you're from a, an animistic kind of worldview background, then you can tend to see a demon under every bush. And so we want to have a biblical worldview. So the first reason to do this is alignment and to make sure that our worldview is biblical. Secondly, it's what I would call the biblical meta-narrative. It's the, it's the story of the Bible. And um, when I think of the big story of the Bible, you could think of it in one way as a tale of two kingdoms. There's the kingdom of God, and there's a rival rebel kingdom um, under the control of the evil one. And it's very common to divide redemption history up into four chapters creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Maybe you've heard of that. But I wonder if you've ever thought of those four chapters in light of spiritual warfare. So creation, you've got God, King, ruling over all this harmony. But then the fall, there's this enemy, there's this revolt, there's a rebellion, and there's the result of that rebellion. And we're still living with the after effects of that. But in Genesis chapter 3, there is the promise right there in the curse of one who will crush Satan's head. Can you see the spiritual warfare theme right from the start? And then ultimately at the end of the Bible, Jesus stands up and says, Behold, I am making all things new. And he's already started doing it in your lives if you've believed in Jesus. And he does it through the church and these kingdom ministries that we're involved in. But it's not fully come until the day that Jesus stands up. So maybe you've never seen the, the whole story of the Bible, but when you think about two kingdoms, there is a cosmic battle going on. And the problem is, if you've never seen that, if you've never seen the spiritual warfare dynamic of the story that your life is wrapped up in, then you're likely to misinterpret events and circumstances in both your life and also the lives of others around you. 
and you can get to wrong conclusions. Or you can totally miss things that you should be picking up. So the first reason to do this is alignment. The second one is this big storyline throughout Scripture. And the third one is I did some thinking in preparation for this about salvation and sanctification. Our Christian lives through a spiritual warfare lens. And maybe you've not thought about it like this, but just think about spiritual warfare and salvation and mission. Salvation is rescuing people from darkness. Salvation, when you preach the gospel in a school or on a campus or, or you go church planting, you are involved in pushing back darkness. It's an act of aggression for King Jesus. When you run an alpha course, you're saying, you're putting a flag in the ground and you're saying King Jesus is ruler and reigner over all things, including these people's lives, and we're calling them to worship him. And so gospel advance, evangelism, salvation, church planting, all these things are an attack on the kingdom of darkness. Remember, it was prophesied in Isaiah, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. And so when you're involved in, in mission, you are pushing back darkness. And because that's true, it should be no surprise that when you read your Bible in the book of Acts, every time they advance into new areas, almost every time there is some demonic thing that happens right at the start. And, and I don't have time tonight to go into all of those, but I've got some scriptures and you can get my notes afterwards. I'm happy to give you the PDF. But wherever uh, the gospel is advancing, I can't resist a few, Jesus, Jesus goes into the era of the Decapolis, there's 10 cities, he lands on the beach and there's a garrison man who's been cutting himself and been chained. And uh, throughout the, um, the book of Acts, Philip goes preaching in Samaria and unclean spirits arrive and start crying out and come out of many, Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, Simon the sorcerer comes, as soon as the gospel's preached, Simon the sorcerer appears. Saul gets to Cyprus and there's this guy called Bar-Jesus. Saul gets to Philippi, Lydia gets converted, the next person who arrives is a demonized slave girl who tells fortunes. Often when the gospels advance, what happens is there's a, there's a bit of a reaction, there's a response. And so when we think about salvation and we think about mission and spiritual warfare, it helps us to think and maybe helps us to pray better when you're running your next alpha or you're going and you, 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 you what's it called? The red frogs. Hey, is that it? You're going out for an evening. I hope you're praying. You're going in to do spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare and sanctification. Maybe if you've never thought of sanctification and spiritual warfare. I see sanctification, life change in you as a restoration of God's kingdom and an overturning of the effects of the fall. It's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare and proclaiming freedom. Don't you love Jesus' mandate that he came to set captives free? And yet so many people are saved but stuck. We're to proclaim freedom in people's lives. My prayer would be that even some of you would come to freedom this weekend. And lastly, just for time, spiritual warfare and prayer. John Piper says, you will not know what prayer is for until you know that life is war. Go to, go to the seminar on prayer tomorrow. So the first reason is alignment, the second reason is this biblical meta-narrative, and the third reason for, for focusing on this is seeing salvation and sanctification. Seeing your whole Christian life through a spiritual warfare lens will help you to see things that you'll be missing if you're not thinking like that. So I hope you'll agree that this is not some sideshow for a subcategory of weird Christians. 
spiritual warfare is not some sort of specialist activity. It's like the PhD, okay, that people with special skills get to be involved in. Rather, it is what all of us face if you're a Christ follower and what all of us need to learn to deal with as we advance the gospel, as we proclaim the gospel in Stellenbosch. Amen. So I have six outcomes that I desire that I've been praying for you guys. That you'd be sober-minded and watchful. We're about to talk about that in a moment. That you'd have an increased confidence in your Savior, Jesus. And that you would know the authority and the agency that is yours as a follower of Jesus. That you'd know how to resist the enemy. And that you'd be confident that God has sent you to set captives free and to push back darkness. And lastly, if you have any kind of demonic influence in your life, that you'd be set free from that influence forever. Amen. Amen. Are you ready? Yeah. Should we go? Let's, uh, what we're going to do is tonight, we're going to look at biblical expectations. We're going to be looking at that whole thing of aligning ourselves with Scripture. Tomorrow morning, we're going to look at the devil's schemes and strategies to defeat him. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the weapons of our warfare. And tomorrow afternoon, there are four great seminars that will dive deeper into each of those. So let's start with tonight and look at biblical expectations for spiritual warfare. My text tonight is 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 to 11. It will be on the screen. But I think it's very clear even just from this. Oh no, I set a time and didn't start it. So I guess I get to start now. <laughs> Scripture explains, as we're about to see in this passage, that your life is wrapped up in a cosmic conflict. Life is not like a war. It's not a metaphor. Your life is in a war. 1 Peter 5, the context is to elders, but I believe it applies to every believer. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory, we get to read the end of the book, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. The true king comes into focus there. So firstly, be sober-minded and watchful. What Peter is saying here is he is exhorting us to have a certain type of thinking. If he was from Stellenbosch, he might have said, Skrukvakar. Okay? A drunk person is not truly alert. Would you agree? So he's telling you to be sober-minded. So then he's, what is he telling you not to be? He's, not telling, he's telling you don't be like a drunken person because a drunken person has their reflexes. It has their abilities dulled. Their vision is blurred possibly. They're not in full control of themselves. They are not in control of their thoughts and they are unguarded. They're not wise. And scripture here urges us to be the exact opposite of a drunken person. We're to be sober-minded, we're to be alert, we're to be sharp, we're to be in control, we're to be on our guard. But why? Why should you be sober-minded? Well, just after the exhortation to be sober-minded, he tells us, 
because you have an adversary. It's such an interesting word because the word translated adversary is to have a great opponent. Now, I'm on the silver team and I just want to say you have an adversary. <laughs> I hope you're competitive. Uh, I, uh, we've had four kids. We still have four kids. Praise God. Um, but when, when we did like little cricket, what do they call it? Mini cricket. Uh, I, I was the dad on the field and uh, there's this little group of kids around. And um, I don't know, somehow I got picked to like be an umpire coach type of thing. And, and so I'm there and the teacher says, okay, now we all just, it's about having fun and whatever. And it's all like inclusive. And I'm like sitting there as a dad thinking, what? So then I said, and, and guys, we have more fun when we win. <laughs> so you have an adversary. I heard Paul cheats. <laughs> Friends, we're told to be sober-minded because you have an opponent that is worth taking note of. And he is one who is prowling around and he's not looking for a cup of tea. It says he's looking to devour you. And so, so many Christians walk around as if they don't have an adversary. But the Bible says, Skrikbakar! Because you have an adversary. And if you don't notice that, you're going to get taken out in some way by him. And so, so many live oblivious, really, to the fact that they have an adversary. And they're living as though it's peacetime. It's like living in Ukraine and we're not really at war, are we? While bombs are flying over your head. When the Bible describes the believer's life, it describes it as one that is deeply intertwined in a cosmic conflict. Now don't get me wrong, I am not for a minute suggesting that you get preoccupied with the devil. Just tell the person, he said, don't get preoccupied with the devil. Just tell the person next to you. Because that's a major error that some Christians make. We should be more caught up. I'm so glad we were singing about Jesus and singing to Jesus. Thank you for that spontaneous song. May our eyes be fixed on Jesus. May we have a greater vision of God than anything else. So it is an error to be preoccupied or impressed with the devil, his power or his tactics. But it is an equal error to be naive. Ignorant and unaware because you do have an adversary and so to be very unwise to not pay attention to his tactics and weapons. Now in a church like One Hope, I'm presuming that our problem is not primarily that you have an overemphasis on the devil. Otherwise I wouldn't have come. <laughs> but I do believe that churches like this can have a tendency to underemphasize. Or be naive and therefore be a soft target and stuff's happening and you're not even aware of it you see sometimes the devil roars like a lion in your face Rawr! and that can be a little bit scary but at least you can see it but he has other tactics and actually that the description in this passage is not a lion roaring it says he is one who is moving stealthily undetected like a hunter focused on its prey lying in ambush waiting 
for an opportunity to pounce. You see, if the devil can lull you into thinking he's not a great adversary, then you are vulnerable. Now, because there's a Springbok rugby game tomorrow, I want to tell you to be like a Springbok. Have you ever seen a Springbok nervously approaching a waterhole? Just get that picture in your mind. Ears up, eyes up. They're actually in a pack. They, they kind of heard probably. Listening out together. <laughs> They've heard that there's an adversary. They've seen their mate, Springboki, <laughs> who got eaten last week. They, they know there's an adversary. They know this is not fun and games. This is real. And so they are any noise that they hear. Why? Because they know they have a powerful, ferocious enemy. They have an adversary. And he's crouching there somewhere and we just don't know where he is. Do you know what? There are no lazy. Have you ever seen a fat springbok? <laughs> there are no lazy, careless springboks. Because all the lazy ones have been eaten. So all the living ones are alert. Note, however, that springboks are alert. They're not afraid. Why? Because a springbok can outrun a lion. It's only in danger when it's not alert. But if it's alert, no problem, try catch me. Likewise, you and I have an adversary, but you don't have to be afraid. You just have to be alert. It doesn't say be very afraid. It says be alert. And so scripture doesn't tell us to be fearful. It tells us to be sober-minded. And later on it says be watchful. The Greek word translated as watchful in your English Bible is the word for vigilant, staying awake, in a state of readiness, just like a springbok. It's not what some Christians are. It doesn't tell you to be nervous. It doesn't tell you to be overstimulated, like where's the devil? Not on alert, or on edge, but alert. Elsewhere in the New Testament letters we are told, Ephesians 5 verse 15 in the NLT says, be very careful how we live, not as fools, because the days are evil. Don't be a dumbo. 2 Corinthians 2.11 is a fascinating verse. It says, we're told not to be unwisely ignorant of our adversary's schemes. We're going to look tomorrow at his schemes because the Bible tells you in, in 2 Corinthians 2.11, don't be ignorant of his schemes, because he's a schemer. It also tells you in that verse that if you're not on your God, you can be outwitted. By him. So do you see it? The Bible is telling you to have a certain understanding and expectation. A way of thinking. It's like a mental map for your life. And it's urging you to evaluate things that happen in your life. And to react to circumstances of your life. With this alertness and sober mindedness in play. And so I want to ask you tonight. What's been your mentality up till now? The amazing thing is as Christians we can change. But what has been, if you're honest, what's been your mentality up to now? You see, I think there are far too many Christians who do think we're just in peacetime. We're not acknowledging really that we have an enemy. And so, for this period of redemption in history, we're living in wartime, not peacetime. And so we do need to be sober-minded. Because our adversary is not looking for peace. He is in attack mode, as this passage described. 
Why is this so important? I believe it's important because the way you see, the way you understand the age that you live in, the way you understand the circumstances of your life will determine your expectation. And your expectation will determine your level of preparation. And I want you to be prepared. Too many Christians are like a person who jumps into, now I, I realized how old I am. Does anyone know who Mike Tyson is? <laughs> I did check, and he's considered to be the world's greatest boxer, and don't get into an argument, I'm not a boxer. But anyway, for, for too many Christians, it's like you jump into a boxing ring with Mike Tyson, known to be the baddest boxer known to the planet because of his viciousness. And there they are, and they think, this is fun, this is like a gym class. You know, you go to like box fit or something like that, you know. <laughs> this is a bit like box fit. The next minute, Mike goes, bah! And he just knocks you flat. And then the Christian's like, he hit me! <laughs> I mean, what did you expect? You got into a boxing ring with bad Mike Tyson. Did you expect him to hug you? Have you ever seen a Christian like that? You know, something happens in their life. I jumped so much, this thing jumped right up. <laughs> Some Christians are like going along and then something happens to them. And they're like, I can't believe it. Duh. Our Christian life is a battle. It's real. It's like jumping into a boxing ring with an angry champion boxer. Jesus himself, your Savior, said, the enemy comes. Not to hug, but to kill, to steal, and destroy. That's his calling card. Satan is not out to bless you. He's crouching down seeking to devour. This year we've been stalked by the adversary in the church that we're from in, in Amamsam Toti. Worship leader, make sure you pray. Our, one of our worship leaders who leads our Zulu choir, suddenly caught up in pornography, gambling, masturbation, online gambling, and sexual sin. Not on the worship team anymore. Just like that. One of the senior leaders in our church had had a pattern of unresolved sin. Unresolved unforgiveness. Just lurking there, under the surface. We go through a big leadership transition, suddenly, boom, it comes out. And we've been dealing with it for months. The devil's not playing games, guys. Don't kid yourself, don't be complacent, don't be, don't be drunken in your thinking, but be sober-minded and alert. Because your mentality determines your expectation, and your expectation will determine your preparation. And so earlier in Peter's letter, he wrote in chapter 4, verse 11, he wrote this. Beloved, do not be surprised by the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you. As though something strange was happening. Can you see he's writing about us sometimes? And we're like, I just can't believe it. Have you ever said that? I know you didn't, but the person next to you. You can just feel it. They've said it. <laughs> Don't be surprised when the fiery trial comes. As though something strange was happening. Attack, resistance and opposition is what happens in wartime, if you're in wartime. I love this example of the Apostle Paul. 
this kind of shows what this might look like in your life. Hopefully not quite as extreme as this. But Paul is in Lystra and he is stoned for preaching the gospel. Remember we said that when you, when you step out, kind of you, 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 you might face some attack. Well, Paul gets stoned for preaching the gospel. That probably hasn't happened lately on campus here. He's so bad that he gets dragged out the city because they think he's dead. And that's where we put dead people. You know, like there's probably a trash heap there. And so they drag him out the city. But the next day he's up preaching again. And this is what he says. Luke records, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, guys, through many tribulations, you must enter the kingdom of God. Does Paul sound shocked by what just happened to him? I mean, if you had been stoned to practically death, you might have been intimidated to, I'm not going to do this this week. <laughs> Paul isn't knocked off course. He's not, he's not deterred. He's not licking his wounds, going to a support group. He dusts himself off, stands up, and he says, dudes, this is what, what, what's to be expected, but it's worth it for King Jesus. And off he goes. He sets their expectations saying, this is the type of stuff you're gonna, you can expect because it's a battle. But it's worth it for King Jesus. You see, the Christian life is not like a war, it is a war. So don't be surprised when it feels like a war. Don't think something strange was happening. I'm going to ask you a question. Maybe you can close your eyes. And then I'll just go one more point. <clears throat> How sober-minded and watchful are you regarding spiritual warfare? Or if you're honest, have this been a little bit under the radar? And then you're in danger of the devil coming and affecting you undetected. Why don't you just, just think about that? Just think, where would I place myself? And why don't you decide, sure, I've just got one verse here to, to obey. Be sober-minded, be watchful, because I do have an adversary. And just ask God to help you to recalibrate. I said one of the reasons that we're preaching on this is for alignment. And maybe, if you're honest, you've been misaligned with Scripture. And the way you viewed your life has not been the way Scripture views your life. All we're saying is, think biblically. And just ask for God's help to reprogram your mental maps. Amen. So the first uh, point tonight, there's just two, is be watchful, be sober-minded. The second one is resist Him. I want you to note that in Peter's passage, you are not to just hang around like a spiritual pinata waiting for the next whack. Just think about that image. I really worked hard on that illustration. <laughs> we are meant to do something. We don't just brace for the next, oh, and wait for the sweets to pop out. Okay? If you go back to the passage, he says, Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking for someone to devour. Resist him. Soldier. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced 
by your brotherhood throughout the world. And that after you've suffered for a little while, do you see, it doesn't even say you won't suffer. Don't worry, you won't suffer. After you have suffered, you don't see that on Jesus' pencils. The God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ, will restore you, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Don't you love scripture? It's so balanced. It's so practically applicable to our lives. Scripture doesn't say to you, you've got a great enemy. So buy a t-shirt with welcome written on it, lie on the floor and let him wipe his feet on you. It doesn't tell you to curl up or to act like a doormat. No, the Bible tells you what to do. It tells you to resist. It tells you to stand up to this adversary. Even though he's a great adversary, you just stand up. You see, you are to be sober-minded and you are to be watchful so that you can do something. You can resist. You see, if you're not sober-minded and you're not watchful, you won't be able to resist. But if you are sober-minded and watchful, you can resist, which is what he's telling you to do. And so being sober-minded and watchful is so that you can do something, which is resist. You can stand firm in your faith knowing that the attacks will not endure, that we endure, are not unique. Did you notice that? They're saying, hey, what you're experiencing is common. It's, it's the common experience. Verse 9. Saying, he also goes on to saying, know, knowing that you know how the story ends. You've been called into his eternal glory. Verse 10. And knowing, verse 11, that Jesus himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. And all glory is going to go to him in the end. He wins. So you to resist knowing those things. And we're going to look more tomorrow in how to resist. But for now, in closing, I just want to simply go to one short little passage, which is maybe the most helpful little passage on resisting. And we're going to kind of close with that tonight and then pray. James chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. If you're thinking, how do we resist? So the whole big idea tonight is have a biblical mindset. Be sober, be alert. And then you're told to do something. And tomorrow we're going to look at how we do that in detail. But in short form here tonight, James chapter 4, there's three steps here and two promises. Three steps and two promises. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. Here's the first promise. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. Another promise. He will draw near to you. Don't you love that? You can't even write books on spiritual warfare because it's actually quite simple. Submit to God. Draw near to Jesus. Have a big view of Jesus, your King and Conqueror. Know that you belong with Him. I love camps because what you've effectively said is, this is what I'm doing. You've consecrated yourself. That's a good old-fashioned word. You've said, I'm not doing that so that I can do this. You, you've, you've, You've done the first bits and, and, and verse 8. You, you've submitted yourselves to God. And then you to resist. You to know how to resist. And we're going to unpack that tomorrow. But if the Bible tells you to do something, does the Bible ever give you an impossible command? 
Does the Bible say, do this? And, and you just know it's impossible. Can't do that. I know you're doing the Sermon on the Mount and some of those things can feel impossible. But the Bible doesn't tell you to do things that you can't do. That would be unkind. So if the Bible says resist, it means you can. So you resist the devil. And don't you love this promise? He must. Say must. Must flee from you. Why does he have to run away from you? Because you're in Christ Jesus. And he is Lord of all. And so he can come and he can try and he can... But if you resist him in the name of Jesus, he has to flee. And, and the easiest example is, is a light. If we turn out these lights, it's dark. But as soon as you turn, if you just lit one candle, you never see darkness. No, 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 light, I'm going to take over. No, no, the light just over overwhelms the darkness. When you have Jesus in your life, the devil has no control or power over you. He can try and threaten you. He can try, but he has no ultimate control or power over you. And so as you resist him, he has to flee. I have claimed that promise so many times. It makes your prayers very short. You have to go. Bye. I don't know if this is going to apply in Stellenbosch. I've wondered. I've always told Zulu people, now please forgive me if, I, if I'm actually offending anyone. My, my Afrikaans isn't that good. But I often tell Zulu people, you only need one Afrikaans word to grow as a Christian. Footsack. <laughs> You just tell the devil to get lost. That's it. Get lost. I'm not even talking to you. You resist him. He has to flee from you. I want you to go away from this weekend with a glorious confidence, not in who you are, but in who Jesus is. And that yes, although we have an adversary, we have a much, much greater Savior. And when you use the authority of Jesus, there's no power struggle. There's just rule and reign of Jesus. It's the kingdom of God. There was a Dutch prime minister. His name's Adrian Kaper, not the cricketer from our generation. In the early 1900s, and he famously said, wouldn't you love to have a prime minister like this? He famously said, there is not one square inch of this planet over which Jesus doesn't say, this is mine. And your life is his too. And I love how when you have resisted the devil, this little passage then says, draw near to God. Fill that empty space with the presence of your Savior. Be filled again by the Holy Spirit. Uh, just wallow in His love. Climb up onto His lap. Be in His arms. Be affirmed. Be comforted. Be strengthened. And this promise, if you ever draw near to God, one step from your side, 10,000 steps from his. <laughs> it's not like, well, we're, we're, are, you, are you happy to be with me? No, the Bible tells you, don't you love the prodigal, uh, the prodigal parable? That uh, even when he was a long way off, it says, his father does the thing that fathers were not meant to do in that day. And he just, he just runs. And he comes to him. Brothers and sisters, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and He will draw near to you. Amen.
I want us to stand and to just have a moment of prayer. And um, why don't you stand up? I know it's hot chocolate time or something like that soon. But let's, yeah, let's close our eyes. Thank you, Jesus. Now, why don't you just speak to Jesus? Just say, Lord, I'm here and I, I want you to speak to me, Lord. Just ask God to help you to be realigned. Maybe you've even felt some of that happening tonight. Lord, realign me. If you've if you feel like you've had an over or an under emphasis, just ask God to realign you. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters, and I want to ask, Lord, I thank you that none of us have to be afraid of the devil. But we are called to be alert. We are called to be sober-minded in our thinking. We are called to not be naive but to understand the enemy's tactics. And Lord, we just give ourselves to you tonight. We give ourselves to you for this whole weekend. We say, Jesus, have your way with us. Why don't you just say that in your own ways? Lord, here I am. I've come to have fun. I've come to be with my friends. I've come to be with my church family. But Lord, have your way with me. Lord, we pray that as a result of this weekend, darkness would be pushed back in our lives. Oppression or, or things that have been clinging onto us, Lord, would, would let go in Jesus' name. Lord, that we'd be more in awe of you as a result of this weekend. And Lord, we would we'd go back into our everyday lives, Lord God, with a greater confidence not only in you, but in what you've called us to do. Lord, I just, I give each one of us into your hands and I say, Jesus, do a beautiful thing in our hearts, Lord, I pray. I pray that there'd be glorious freedom in this place because you are our Redeemer and you're our Lord. So Lord, our ears are open and our hearts are soft and we say, do all that you have in mind. Lord, we're with you, heart and soul. We pray for your blessing. We pray, Lord God, that as a result of this weekend, the kingdom would advance forcefully, not just in our own lives, Lord, but in the lives of those around us, Lord God, and in our community. We pray this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen.